This morning, we're going to be continuing our series called The Miracle of Mercy in a world of sin and brokenness and widespread condemnation of others and even some of our own self-condemnation. We are in need of mercy. So we're going to take a look at the nature of God's mercy and how it informs our own value, the character of who God is, and what it means for us to show mercy to someone else. We're going to be looking at a trio of parables in the Bible about something that was lost. So I have to ask, are there anyone here like me who are constantly losing something? Raise your hand high. If you higher, it's okay. Just, just claim it. A few of you are raising your hand. Some of you are pointing at the person next to you, right? I'm always losing my keys, my phone, my sunglasses, and sometimes they are in my hand. Where's my phone? It's in my hand, right? So I'm constantly losing something. And this past March, we were at Catalina Island with our InterVarsity students. We do a Bible study Uh, and also a prayer seminar for students during their spring break. And we were there, and one of my favorite things that I get to do during that time that kind of helps me get rest other than napping is volleyball. I love spending our free time with the students playing volleyball. And one day this past March, we were playing volleyball together in one of those free time slots, and I hit the ball, and I felt something weird in my left hand. And I looked down at my left hand, and I realized my wedding ring wasn't on it. So I kind of stood back and looked around at the sand, and there was nothing shiny to be seen in the sand. So I realized I have just lost my wedding ring. I cannot find it. And word spread quickly throughout the entire camp that Ben Vale just lost his wedding ring playing volleyball in the sand. So what happens next? Over 100 college students show up, and we start searching the volleyball court sand in concentric circles around the scene of the crime, farther and farther out, just trying to see if we can find this wedding ring. And every few minutes, a student would come up to me and say, are you okay? You seem calm. And inside, all I could think of was the the face of my wife having to tell her, I just lost yet, yet again something else, but this time, honey, it was the symbol of our love. And I did it playing volleyball. I was just imagining that conversation playing out. And yeah, she would have been gracious, but she would have been probably sarcastically frustrated that I lost it. So finally, and this is true, after 45 minutes, 45 minutes of 100 people digging through sand, finally, I hear from behind me, I found it! I found it! And this girl was holding it straight in the air, and just at that moment, about 100 people that had been searching, and maybe 50 or so more that were just watching the spectacle, cheered like there was a touchdown that just won the Super Bowl. I mean, everyone was really, really excited that we found it. And as I, as I reflect on that story of losing something, it reminds me a lot of the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. What I want us to understand before we start is this. The value of what's lost is directly proportional to the way we pursue it. The value of what's lost is directly proportional to the way that we pursue it. If I had dropped a quarter in the sand, I might have given up after about five seconds of searching. But because it was my wedding ring, hundreds of college students gave up their free time to help me find it. It was valuable, worthy of our time. And we know this to be true. Parents in the room, if you were to lose a child in a crowd of people at a theme park, would you casually stroll around looking for him or her? No! You would be freaked out, calling out their name, running around trying to find it because what you just lost was very valuable and you want to find it. And so you're cruising around trying to find it. What we lose, the value of it, indicates the way that we pursue it. So Jesus tells us three consecutive stories of something that gets lost. 
And we're going to take a look at what they have to say about the miracle of mercy. But before we do that, let me pray for us. Father, we come before you this morning in need of mercy. I don't know every story with every family and every person in these seats, Lord, but we know that um, we have our own brokenness. There are things that have happened in our families, in our lives, in our businesses, in our finances, um, that we are in need of you, in need of your grace, in need of your mercy. And God, uh, I just pray that for each of us, we would be attentive to what you have to say, that you would give us soft hearts that want to hear um, and to respond. And so, Lord, we want to hear from you this morning. Pray, th- pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to join me in Luke chapter 15. And if not, we're going to follow along on the screen. But uh, this is the first uh, book of two parts. Luke and Acts are are considered kind of uh, one of two parts. Luke being the life of Jesus and the disciples, and Acts being the life of the early church. And some of you in Luke 15 might be familiar with some of these parables. And I encourage you to engage because there's going to be something new offered to you. I believe that God has a new word to speak to you this morning. So let's start together in verse 1. Would you follow along with me? Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And it's important for us to note how this passage starts. Jesus has been teaching, and the author notes that now tax collectors and sinners are hanging around him wanting to listen and associate with him. And tax collectors in particular were hated by Jews because they were collecting taxes on the behalf of a a foreign government that was oppressing them, the Romans. And the way that it worked was these ethnically Jewish men would collect taxes for these Romans, but also the way that they got paid was they would set their own commission. And so they could swindle their uncles, their cousins, their own countrymen for whatever they wanted to become rich. And uh, it's believed that they often did that. They took whatever they wanted. So these men, along with some folks that were simply labeled sinners, had come to hear the teachings of Jesus. And then we have this other group, the Pharisees and scribes. And in contrast, they were the religious officials of their day. Pharisees in particular were a zealous religious group made up of common people who tithed to the poor and made it their task to help Israel remain ceremonially clean by the laws of Moses and the oral interpretations of the law. And so essentially, if you're thinking of the Pharisees, imagine a group that puts a fence around the laws of Moses with extra interpretations and extra laws to make sure that no one in Israel would sin. And so they were very, very keen on making sure that they were, they were right. So to these religious leaders, the tax collectors and the sinners are the lowest of the low, those who were far from God, and those that were not worthy being associated with in any way. And so in response to this little setting that we get, Jesus tells three consecutive parables. Let's look at the first two. Would you follow along? Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, 
There is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. So for the sake of time, I'm going to key us into the first one with the sheep. A story involving shepherds and sheep would have been a common reference in first century Palestine. In this story, the shepherd has a hundred sheep, and that would make him fairly well off because an average flock at this time was between about 20 and 200. So sheep would have been a solid financial asset, producing wool and mutton. But if you know anything about sheep, they're not very smart. They can't protect themselves. That's why they need shepherds. They often run off and do their own thing. Um, And a shepherd really needs to keep an eye on who is running away. And so in this story, this shepherd is doing his count at the end of the day. He knows he has 100 and he counts 99. And this is the moment of truth. Remember, the value of what's lost is directly proportional to the way that we pursue it. So what happens next depends on what value the shepherd gives to one of his sheep. And what he does is he leaves the other 99 sheep behind. When he finds it, not only is he just kind of mildly happy, but he's elated and he invites people to celebrate and rejoice with him over finding this one lost sheep. What was lost has been found. Truly to the shepherd, each member of his flock has a unique, immense value. And Jesus leaves us no guesswork in interpreting what that means. Look at verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So remember, Jesus is talking to a group that now includes tax collectors and sinners, and he's responding to these Pharisees and their scribes who are grumbling because Jesus welcomes them and eats with them. To the tax collectors and sinners, Jesus is saying this, one of you being found produces more joy in heaven than 99 of these Pharisees who think that they need no repentance. In other words, you have value. You are worth being sought after. And then Jesus continues on with a third parable. Would you follow along with me? Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he, had, all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to self, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but treat me like one of your hired hands. So he sent off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, His father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found." 
and they began to celebrate. In this parable, we find a more elaborate version of the first two. The son decides that he would rather pretend that his father were dead and take his inheritance right now. This decision was just as offensive as it sounds. It was a father-son telling him he'd rather have the money he would get if he were dead than stay and have a relationship with him, know him, or be in his home. And instead of saying no, the father does something crazy and says, okay, I'll give you your inheritance and you can leave. And suddenly, the sheep from the first parable is getting a little closer to home. This son, who would have likely been in his teens because he wasn't married yet, goes off and squanders all of the wealth that he was given in reckless living. And it doesn't say what he did, but just imagine it, he probably did that. Soon he realizes that he's wasted it all and he has absolutely nothing. The lavish parties he funded dried up, the friends he thought he had moved on, and he finds himself homeless and without a penny. And the next scene describes a completely dehumanizing job for a Jewish boy. He's hired by a foreigner who didn't likely worship his God to be sent out into the fields to feed pigs. And in a religious system dependent on cleanliness, pigs were the dirtiest animal that you could get. No self-respecting, God-fearing Jew would own one, let alone associate or be near a pig. So this boy has completely hit rock bottom. He's like a sheep without a shepherd. He's wandered off, and worse, he knows it. He knows it was his fault. So what does he do? He realizes that even the hired hands of his father's home have more than he has, have enough bread, even some to spare. So he devises a plan to go home, and he kind of prepares the speech that he's going to be giving to his father when he arrives. So this boy walks home, he gives his speech to the father, and his father rejects him as his son and shows a little bit of mercy and gives him a job. No, that is not what happens. The father had been looking for him all along. The text says this, but while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Friends, he sees him from afar. He was watching, waiting, hoping for his son to return. And when he sees him, he's filled with compassion for him. But he doesn't end there. This old man picks up his robes and runs after his son to embrace him and kiss him. And if you know anything about Jewish men in this time, they would not be found running, let alone picking up their robes and dashing across a field like that. He throws caution to the wind. He doesn't care what anyone thinks. His son is returning, and he runs after him to embrace him. And what I love is, remember, the son prepared a speech. He doesn't get even a quarter of the way in before his dad starts preparing the party. It says, but the father said to the slaves, quickly, bring out the robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to throw their party. Can you just say, wow, with me? Wow. What's lost has been found. What's dead is alive again. This is the incredible mercy that Jesus has for a lost sheep. And there's three things that I want to invite you to write down on your notes as we process what these parables teach us about mercy. First, Jesus values his sheep. Remember, the value of what's lost is directly proportional to the way that we pursue it. Jesus will drop everything and save the lost, and he won't hesitate to throw a lavish party when they are found. 
Imagine the good news that this was to these tax collectors and sinners who are listening to this story. They are despised by Jews, and they're too unclean and lowly to even be associated with. The Pharisees and scribes are grumbling, and I have to imagine, given the scene, that everyone hears everything. I think Jesus and the tax collectors and sinners probably know that here are these religious officials grumbling against Jesus. And in that tense moment, the question comes up, how will Jesus respond? Will he send away these lowly sinners, devaluing them and claiming them unfit to know him or to hear his good news? Not even close. He elevates them by telling three stories, telling them that they are valuable and worth seeking and saving at all costs. And these, these folks every day are reminded about the decisions that they've made especially the tax collectors. They know, they chose that profession. They decided to turn their back on their own Jewish people and to become rich by taxing on the behalf of the Romans and collecting their commissions. By seeking to hear from Jesus, it's as if they're sick of staring at the slop longingly and they want to hit the reset button on their lives. They don't like where they've wound up. They want something different and they're they're wanting to hear what Jesus has to say if he's going to give them a way out. And when Jesus is presented with this opportunity, this choice of losing honor by welcoming and eating with them, he chooses to lower himself and elevate them. He has compassion on them, for they were sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus wants them to come home and be restored into his Father's house. So friends, if you can relate to it all feeling like an outcast or feeling like your sin has separated you from God, You might be saying, you don't know my story. You don't know what I did this weekend. You don't know what I've been doing the last 12 years. And I'm here to tell you, God's mercy is far more than enough for you. And it's such that not only is he waiting to give it to you, he's running after you to give it to you. He wants to give you this mercy, this grace. That's the good news of the gospel, that while Jesus was in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he empties himself on a cross, taking the form of a slave, and he humbles himself to the point of death. This is the compassion that has no bounds. Jesus lived a perfect life and died in place of our sins. He dies a criminal's death for a crime he didn't commit, and the Father raises him from the dead. And it's in in that power that we can find forgiveness, mercy, and grace for our sins, that if we believe in him, we can have eternal life. This is the mercy that we find in God's character. But there's one more thing uh, I'd like to end with this morning. Now I'm going to give you the second point first. I I skipped a little bit too far. That's all right. God's character is revealed. The very reason we can proclaim with confidence that that which is lost has immense value is because of the character of the Father. And that's a little bit of what I just talked about. I just skipped the point. That is as we see the character of Jesus or the father in this story seeking after his lost son, we see the character of who God is, that he'll meet you far more than halfway. And lastly this, we find the mercy we are to extend to others. So the parable of the father and his son was actually only half finished where we left off. And so let's finish that story together. Would you follow along with me? We're going to be in verse 25. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. 
He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you. And I've never disobeyed your command. But you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him? Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. And at this moment, Jesus is speaking directly to the Pharisees and scribes that we saw in verse 1. They, like this elder son, have sought to do everything correctly to be the very best son that they could be to the father. When he finds his father throwing a massive party for his younger brother who had sinned against his whole father's household, he becomes enraged, justified in his self-righteousness. He accuses his father of mistreating him. But his father, still full of compassion, reminds him that all that he has has always been his, always will be his. And the invitation to the elder son is clear. Join me in seeing the value of your lost brother being found. Value him. Humble yourself. Rejoice with me. Friends, perhaps some of us here are like this elder son. We've been around the church for a long time. We've worked hard to stay close to God. And what it can do is it can harden our hearts as we justify ourselves and look down upon others. And if that's you this morning, listen to the invitation of the Father. Come rejoice with me. See the value of the lost. My character is such that I will seek them and save them. I would leave 99 of you behind to find one of them. Will you have that kind of compassion and mercy for others? Will you love them to the point of humility, sacrifice, and servanthood? And friends, we're living in a troubled time right now. In the wake of a heated, controversial election, the question remains, how are we to live? And I believe this passage gives us a beautiful blueprint. We are to love others as Christ first loved us. The Jesus who seek, sought after us and saved us by the means of mercy and grace. And we're given the same opportunity that the Pharisees and scribes gave to Jesus. We can choose to prescribe the correct value to everyone, even those we disagree with or look down upon. Brothers and sisters, let's be less concerned with being justified or right and more concerned with offering grace and mercy to others, especially those with whom we disagree. What if we chose to associate with those unlike us, to eat with them and welcome them and listen to their stories? What if we sought to hear them what if we humbled ourselves and, in the words of James, became quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry? As we talk about this mercy, I want us to know that it is scandalous. And as we experience it, let's come together and offer it willingly to others without regard for how we receive it in return. So as we close, I want to invite you to close your eyes with me. I'm going to pray an exhortation from uh, the letter uh, from Paul to the church at Philippi in chapter 2. So I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to pray for us. 
If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in, the full, in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So God, we are in need of you this morning. There are many of us here in this room that need to experience your grace and your mercy in a new and profound way. Lord, would you show us the ways in which you are not just sitting back waiting for us to condemn us, wagging your finger at us, but that you are waiting on the porch, looking out to see if we will come back home. Lord, I pray that people in this room would experience what it's like to see their heavenly Father pick up his robe and come running after them, embracing them, giving them the family ring, putting a robe and sandals on them, kissing them, and throwing a party for their return. God, would we be people that get to experience that kind of mercy? Would you help us let go of the reasons why we're holding ourselves back from coming back to you? And Lord, for all of us, would you help us continue to learn what it means to extend mercy to, to others, to put on humility, mercy, grace, and to regard others as better than ourselves? We are in need of you. We're in need of your good news. So Lord, would you help us? Pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.